Welcome to Choose Wisely, the podcast where we deconstruct food and sustainability topics with nuance and primary sources. I'm Caroline Nelson, and this is the first episode. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of how I got here. And by here, I mean specifically a little farmhouse in Townsend, Montana, surrounded by grass and barley fields with a flock of sheep in the background. I think knowing where we all come from helps us understand each other. So I'm laying the foundation for Choose Wisely today with its origin story. I was not supposed to end up here. And some days, like this week, when it was negative 20 outside, I wished I hadn't, but no. This journey into shepherding and cattle ranching has been a trip that I wouldn't trade for anything. And what's more interesting, I think, is how the very nature of the ways I have thought about food and sustainability and agriculture have been upended in the process. I've had a lot of lenses throughout the years looking at those topics, and they've changed a lot. Let's get into it. My first lens started with my upbringing. My twin brother and I were born and raised in Pennsylvania, and we grew up in a castle, (laughs) which I say jokingly, but I actually just looked up the house on Zillow the other day, and I was like, yeah, no, it's a castle. It was this gigantic early 1900s stone three-story house built by like probably a robber baron. (laughs) There was like a walk-in safe in the basement. You know, you were like, the people that built this house might have done some crime. (laughs) And the house was really built to tell a story to the people outside of it looking in. And maybe to tell a story to the people inside it too. The story was something about importance, about class. And I start with the house because it sets the stage. My family was very well off when I was growing up. It was the late 1990s, pre-9-11. The economy was booming and the culture at large was one of consumerism and we were no exception. So I guess my first lens about not just food, but everything was pure and simple consumption. I gave no thought to the food on my plate. It appeared, I ate it, that was it. I was aware farmers existed somewhere, mostly in books and movies, but it didn't matter to me. It felt like we had an endless supply of whatever we needed. It's funny though, when I look back, even as a kid, the way that we consumed as a family and as a culture didn't feel good to me. It was all I knew, but I didn't feel good in my bones being part of it. The consumption was everywhere in culture at the time and everywhere in our house. This massive castle house was full of stuff. It would not be inaccurate to say that my dad was a hoarder, but not like on the TV show where people are like buried alive in their garbage. Although my dad would hoard papers and magazines and receipts, but primarily he hoarded art and antiques. He referred to himself as an antique collector slash antique dealer but mostly things came in rather than going out. There wasn't a lot of dealing. (laughs) And our house filled up. The walls had paintings on them practically from the ceiling to the floor. Even the stairs, there were items on each stair when you were walking up. I felt like I had to be this cat, gently, carefully moving around this house. Even the fireplaces had things in them. And all this stuff was intended, I think, to tell the same story that the house was. The people who lived here are important in some way. 
And that was sort of how we interacted with one another. We were also based around stuff. My dad would use gifts to tell us he loved us and sometimes to suggest we be a slightly different version of ourselves he might love more. And looking back now, 20 years later, 30 years later, I'm like, God, my parents hemorrhaged cash at a rate that I can't imagine. Things were extravagant, exorbitant, excessive. But when I was 10, I got a glimpse into another way of living. My mom took me to Montana on a cattle drive at a working ranch in this little town called Townsend. And that week-long cattle drive, I was in my element. We slept in tents. We ate meals out of a cook wagon. We spent the whole day in the saddle. And I was hooked. There's no other way to explain it. My mom tells the story of me crying the whole way home on the airplane. It was like the feeling of being a zoo animal who, for the first time, was in her natural habitat. And I was just a little kid. I couldn't articulate any of this into words. I could just sob. And I think to get me to stop crying, my mom said, Caroline, when you're older, you can try and work on that ranch if they'll let you. And I etched that in my heart. I was like, okay, that's the plan. And unbelievably, several years later, the ranch said yes when I called them up and asked them if I could come help. And I say help in air quotes because I didn't know how to do anything helpful at all. I had no skills. (laughs) But they said yes, and I am forever grateful that they did because in that moment, my entire life was changed. So I started coming out to this ranch, Battle Creek. It started a month at a time, and then it was every summer, and then it was every summer in most breaks. And this was a working cattle ranch. I think at the time they were running cattle on around 20,000 acres, 700 pairs. And when I was out there, I felt grounded. I had never been around people that worked with their hands, that worked outside, that were kind of integrated with the land and their animals. And my lens on life started to change. I was like, oh, (laughs) beef comes from somewhere. It comes from here. Real people spending their days raising it before it becomes a steak. And I kind of extended that. I'm like, okay, wait, everything we eat comes from somewhere. And someone is tending it and growing it. And I know that's obvious, but it was profound to me. It was a big shift. It takes a lot of long, hard days to make a steak. I was starting to be part of them. Prior to that, I had only known animals as pets. Even horses on the East Coast were like big pets. Whereas on the ranch, horses were teammates and cattle were livestock. This was a new category for me. Not loved like pets are, not pampered, but loved nonetheless in a different way. Highly cared for, allowed to live in a very natural way. I had never seen that before. So I'm in my teens and I had whiplash going back and forth from the life I was living in Montana to my real life in Pennsylvania. My brother and I were sent to prep school, this elite boarding school called Lawrenceville, where we rubbed elbows with famous people's children and experienced highly, highly rigorous education. We had these tiny classroom sizes and we sat around circular tables instead of desks. The idea was it was a conversation between everyone, and we were always all on the spot. You couldn't phone it in. You couldn't hide the fact that you didn't do your homework. I remember my first essay that I handed in. It came back with a big red C on it and the comment, there may be a coherent thought here, but I can't find it. (laughs) 
brutal. So it was humbling and I needed it. It really pushed me in a way that was really good for me. It introduced real critical thinking into my life. And more than that, I was introduced to sustainability at Lawrenceville, and that became my next lens. The school was very well funded. It was on the cutting edge of kind of institutional sustainability. There was a garden and composting, sustainability initiatives. We were always talking about like green this, green that. It's gone so much further now. They have an on-campus farm with a sheep herd that grazes their solar panels. Like, it's cool. And one of the very early messages that I received there about sustainability was that how we farm is bad and how we ranch is bad. Basically, how the food gets to our plates is very problematic and it's hurting the environment. I really absorbed that and that became my next big lens. I graduated boarding school right as things with my family were starting to fall apart. This was just after 2008, the big real estate crash. The castle house was revealed to be a house of cards. All the cracks in the seams in the ways that my family had been living became very clear. All spending, no savings. And my parents began what was ultimately a decade-long chapter 11 reorganization, which is another word for bankruptcy. My mom at the time was also going through some health challenges and surgeries, and this was all simultaneous to kind of the financial implosion of our family and also, I would say, a waking up to some emotional things. Maybe I'll talk about that one day. And my brother and I were applying to colleges, only the best, of course, the most prestigious, And that included the Ivy League, which I have to say, even now looking back, I think fairly objectively at, I mean, I was totally underqualified. But this prep school I attended was kind of a feeder school to Princeton specifically. And I ended out getting waitlisted there. The way waitlists work is that you can kind of wait it out, see if you get in. Usually you don't. Or you can defer a year and reapply. And maybe that second time, they'll look at you a little harder because you're really committing to that school. So that was the pitch to my parents. Reapply to Princeton the next year and they said, okay. So I was able to take a gap year. Gap years (laughs) are a category of thing that I now refer to as RPS, which stands for rich people shit. (laughs) Or more accurately in my house, former rich people shit, But nonetheless, my gap year, it was this amazing way out for me. I was able to kind of step off the preordained tracks in my life that prior to that point, I had been fairly grooved into, you know, and I think everyone had looked at my going to Montana, spending all this time out there as kind of like a little hobby. It was always something deeper to me, but now I had time to explore that. So I did. Choose Wisely is brought to you by Little Creek Lamb and Beef. That's us. Little Creek is our grass-fed lamb and pasture-raised beef business. We raise all-natural, regenerative meat, and we ship it from our Montana ranch to your door every Monday. Sustainability is the heart of everything we do, from how our livestock are raised to our recyclable packaging. Little Creek is us. It's just us. Myself, my husband, and our ranch hand. We have a very small team. No middlemen, no funny business. 
Just Us custom packing each order for you. For a limited time, we're offering 10% off your first order over $100 with the code WISELY. All caps. That's WISELY, W-I-S-E-L-Y. Follow the link in the show notes to shop or visit littlecreekmontana.com. I went to Montana and one summer day, I was pulled up to the gas station in town, Rocky Mountain Supply. It's still there. Well, it's moved. Same name. And on the other side of the pump, I saw this cute boy. (laughs) He had a flatbed truck and a cutoff t-shirt, like the sleeves cut off, not a crop top. (laughs) And this ball cap and a hound dog. And I was in. And that is the very, very, very short version of how I met the man that is now my husband, Justin. Within a couple weeks, we had gone on our first date and we were pretty much in love from that point forward, although it took us almost 10 years to really come back together again. There was a lot of distance and breakups and challenges. But that year was just magic for me. It wasn't just meeting him. It was it was really ranching for the first time. You know, I had finally accumulated enough skills through all my time out there that I was somewhat useful to have around now on the ranch. I experienced my first fall gather, which is when you bring cattle down from the mountains into the valley. I experienced my first hunting season. I was ranching, you know, for real. I was even decently helpful working cattle at that point. And I really knew more than ever that this was the life I wanted one day. And I was hatching plans to try to go to college out west. But like I had told my parents, I was going to apply to Princeton one more time. And shockingly, that time, I got in. And so Princeton became my next lens, specifically the anthropology department, which became my major. If you listen to any armchair expert with Dak Shepard, he always talks about his anthropology degree. And people that are anthro majors were like this kindred spirit because it's a really profound type of education that you get. I always call it an unlearning. So you go in with all these preconceived ideas about how people are, how humans are, what it means to be human, what's best for humanity, what culture is. And anthro just absolutely breaks down every assumption that you have. And you learn, you know, for every assumption, there's a culture that denies it. For me, at least, it really opened my mind. It was a profound unlearning. And I also really started to see, you know, modern day humans as very much a part of an evolutionary chain and very much a part of an animal kingdom, but in a very different kind of way. I got to go to a Neanderthal dig in Bordeaux, France, and like with my own hands, I was able to brush the dirt away from a buried ancient flint scraper tool that the Neanderthals had used to clean hides many, many thousands of years prior. I loved that, and I was surprised to find this rootedness there in an academic experience. And I think now, if ranching hadn't worked out, I could have been a really happy anthropologist. I love digging in the dirt. And I still keep up on the anthro world today. But back at Princeton, just like boarding school, it was tough. It was a pressure cooker. It was extremely rigorous. I'm grateful for that because... (laughs) It made entering ranching, which has got to be one of the hardest things to do, look a little easier. We had to write a thesis to graduate, which is basically either a gigantic essay or a small book, depending on your perspective. And you have to do original research at a very high level. 
And that really elevated my ability to think critically, to make connections, to read sources, read between the lines, cross-reference things, interrogate my own arguments, just hone my thinking. And I continued to be into agriculture and sustainability. Cowspiracy came out around this time, which I now call it a shockumentary. But, you know, it was framed as this expose of the cattle industry. And I ate up every word. And there was another lens for me. The central thesis of cowspiracy is that animal agriculture, meat, was the climate change driver. And so I had been on a cattle ranch and I... I understood that the kind of ranching I had seen was not represented in Cowspiracy, but I just kind of made a little exception in my mind of like, meat is this way, raising beef is this way, except for on this ranch that I know and love. And the idea that meat is the climate change driver was at that time, and in many circles today still is, the gospel, the truth. And I was totally aligned with that perspective. The only problem is it's wrong. (laughs) Let's go to the Cowspiracy Wikipedia page. If you scroll down, there's a big section titled Factual Inaccuracy. I quote, Cowspiracy has been criticized for falsely claiming that animal agriculture is the primary source of both greenhouse gases and associated environmental destruction. Scientific reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have consistently reached the consensus that the leading cause of anthropogenic human-caused global warming is the combustion of fossil fuels accounting for about two-thirds of emissions, not animal agriculture. Basically, Cowspiracy used statistics that have been debunked. And we're going to get into all of that on Choose Wisely. And I'm so excited. But anyway, I really saw ranching as an industry that needed to radically change. And I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to be a rancher just like the ranch that I was working on, just like Battle Creek. I wanted to be part of the solution, just like them, where you're, you know, having calves born on pasture, the cattle are raised on grass all year round. You know, they live really, truly wild lives. They're never confined. I was all in to that. But it took me several years after college to make the permanent jump. And what I was doing at home in Pennsylvania during those years might be another podcast episode. But on the home front, things were not good. Everything was imploding at once. I, at one point, I had enough money for one therapy session and I went. And at the end of the session, the therapist was like, if you come back, I'll only charge you half. <laughs> so I had, I had discount therapy during those years, which I'm so, so grateful for. It was really profound. And got on the other side. And finally, in 2017, I was ready to take the big leap and move to Montana. I took a ranch hand job full-time at Battle Creek Ranch. I was going to figure out a way to make this work, to make a living and be a rancher. I'm embarrassed to say this now, but this is like 2017, 2018. It took me over a year of working on a commercial cattle ranch. That's what Battle Creek was a commercial conventional cattle ranch to realize that that ranch was not the exception in the cattle industry. It was the rule. So there I was thinking that we were only one of the very few good cattle ranchers out there. But the problem was I kept meeting the neighbors and they were also clearly good. Everybody that I met, we're casting our eyes across thousands and thousands and thousands of acres all around multiple counties and everywhere It was ranchers, 
raising their cattle on pasture, feeding grass. It was very much just like it was in an old cowboy movie. And then I learned that this is actually what the beef industry looks like. This is the first phase of beef production throughout the country. And we're going to get into beef production process in another episode, but this is what's called a cow-calf operation. And these are, as a rule, family-owned ranches raising cattle on pasture. And so that was really the first brick that fell from me, or the first, let me say, crack in the glass of the lens that I had from kind of the cowspiracy days. I was starting to see that cowspiracy and sort of the narrative that we were hearing everywhere, it was leaving some things out, either deliberately or by accident. And I started to do my own research, just learn about the cattle industry, both from my lived experience and also just basic Googling. So one of the very basic Google searches I did somewhere around probably, I don't know, 2019, 2020, was something like (laughs) USDA emissions by industry. And it took me, I, I swear, it took me like a year of wanting to Google this before I even did Google it because I didn't want to see it there in black and white on a graph. You know, agriculture, 80% of emissions or whatever the percentage I assumed it was. I assumed that there on the graph, it would show me that what the ranches that I loved so much and what I wanted to do, it would show me how bad what we were doing was. I want you to do an experiment with me. I want you to Google that. USDA emissions by industry. So this is the U.S. carbon emissions. So these are greenhouse gas emissions. These are the bad ones broken down by industry. Let's look at it. I'm also putting it in the show notes. If you're seeing what I'm seeing, you're seeing a pie chart with five industries, transportation, industry, commercial, residential, and agriculture. And agriculture is not the biggest It's not the second biggest. It's not the third biggest. It's not the fourth biggest. It is the smallest. I think this chart like healed my mental health like 5% when I saw it. I just couldn't believe my eyes. There it was, you know, USDA.gov, greenhouse gas emissions from 2020, agriculture, the smallest of the five main industries. I was blown away. And then I started to get angry, not because I don't think agriculture's emissions are important to diminish, important to learn about. Agriculture is the primary emitter of methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. And we'll talk a lot about methane later on, but I wasn't trying to diminish agriculture's responsibility or role, but I just was like, why aren't we hearing about these other industries? We can't eat anything from these other industries. Why is this getting left out? And so another crack appeared in that lens that I had had. And a different story started to emerge for me then. And it's one that I think is starting to come together in public right now. I'm excited to fuel the fire. (laughs) A story about fossil fuels, about following the money, about corporations, and that the causes of climate change are very different than the narrative at least five, 10 years ago. But back on the ranch, Justin and I got back together. We moved in right away with each other and we got married in 2020 and we had a COVID wedding. We moved into this tiny ancient house, probably built around the same time as the castle house I was raised in, except this one was like three rooms, insulated with straw. 
we were so broke and we were also just such a mess. The grass would get so tall that even if we would have had a mower, we couldn't have cut it. And so Justin would borrow his dad's swather, which is like a hay cutting piece of equipment to swath the yard. Like we had windrows like for hay in the yard of our grass. We could have baled hay. Money was so tight. Ranch handing, spoiler alert, does not pay much. I think I was making 15 to 18K a year. It was was pretty tough. I remember those tax returns. <laughs> I would have these Google Calendar reminders when I would get billed for my student loans or my car payment. It would be like $23 to Great Lakes. And I had to make sure that I had that much in my account. And I left those notifications in for years after I was no longer worried about those $23 specifically as a reminder. But I barely noticed that I was broke. Truly, I barely noticed. I loved my work so much and I wanted in, I wanted to grow and build something in ranching. But I saw increasingly clear as day that there really is no way in to become a rancher their traditional way. Pretty much everyone around me had either been born into it or married into it. And that's because the capital required to ranch or to farm, basically to get into land and and equipment and livestock, it's almost entirely prohibitive to entering it without money. Basically, you got to pay to play. You got to have money to try to make some money in farming and ranching. And we didn't have any. So I was going to have to come in an untraditional way. And I was keeping my eye out. And then my life changed again when I saw a Facebook post that said four free Icelandic sheep. I Googled Icelandic sheep and I was fascinated by them. My quick Googling turned up a lot about how they were this amazing gourmet quality grass-fed meat. They were this kind of ancestral Viking breed of sheep. They don't have traditional white wool coats and fleece. They have all these different colors, almost like a long hair type of fleece. They've got horns. They look like big hairy goats. (laughs) I loved them. And I wanted to do this grass-fed thing. And there were four sheep. I asked Justin and, and we borrowed somebody's horse trailer and we went and we got them. And I was in the sheep business. They started lambing almost right away. So I brought them home and, and like six, eight weeks later, they start having babies. And suddenly I was in it for real. And also suddenly my flock size had doubled. (laughs) I went from four sheep to eight sheep and I dove in right away. That same year, I pre-sold my first shares of grass-fed lamb before I had even booked butcher dates, before I knew how to get meat packaged in labels and USDA approved. I didn't know anything. I just started advertising them and we had 15 customers that first year. They prepaid, so I had money to butcher and and to get packaging and and all that. My prices were so low, I'm sure I lost money, but I had enough to get started. And I opened a credit card with a credit line of $5,000. And that's where all my expenses went that first year. From two years from that point, I was able to go part-time at the ranch. And then shortly thereafter, I went full-time into ranching on my own. I got more sheep. We fixed up corrals at our house and we were able to house them. We got a really cheap livestock trailer and I got electric fencing and a solar charger to electrify the fence and keep the sheep in. And I was in business. I could move my little sheep flock around and they would graze odds and ends around this amazing agriculture community that I'm in. And that was Little Creek, 
we called the business Little Creek based on this ever flowing little creek in the mountains at Battle Creek Ranch that never runs dry. And I just thought it was perfect. I was going to be that little engine that could, that wouldn't give up. And I was going to, you know, be part of a big ranch one day. (laughs) And I was also getting deeper and deeper into ranching for real. And the first couple years of doing this, I felt like I was kind of wearing a costume. I I refused to wear a cowboy hat. I was just very self-conscious of myself. I felt like I was playing a rancher. And at some point in those early years, I went from playing one on TV (laughs) to being one for real. And I was also just getting much deeper into agriculture. My circle was expanding. I was meeting vegetable farmers, other cattle ranchers, crop farmers. And I had this growing frustration and a gap. When I would go home to the East Coast and interact with friends and family there, I was hearing a lot you know, agriculture and food and sustainability was a very hot topic, but they were getting a lot wrong, not just based on my, you know, lived experience, but based on the research that I was spending a lot of time reading up on. And it's not their fault. I was reading articles in the New York Times that were getting fundamental facts about ranching in the U.S. wrong, like flat wrong, stuff that you could easily fact check. And I was just so confused and it made me feel a little nuts. Like, am I crazy? So that was one lens that started to appear. And then came another, social media. I started sharing a whole ton on social media, and I was confronted with a whole new level of misinformation. For example, back then, sharing videos of sheep shearing was banned on Instagram, and it would get your account, like, dinged. Content warnings would pop up before shearing videos, basically suggesting that it was animal cruelty. It had really been sold to the public in that way. And I would have believed that same thing just one year prior, but now I had sheep and I realized that for their own comfort, I had to shear them. Even though the wool of my specific breed was worthless, it has no commodity value, I still had to pay to shear them so they would be healthy and okay. And I would share these videos of the quick, painless haircut that they get and then have people attack me and lob these baseless claims. And it made me realize this gap that I was feeling you know, home with my family and friends. There was a huge gap in the public. It was even bigger than I realized. And I was learning other things too. I was starting to really see a a clearer financial picture of farming and ranching and following the money. And where it kept going back to was banking and loans. I learned how many farmers and ranchers operated in the red, how we were losing family farms annually at really alarming rates. I heard crazy stories like my mentor told me back in the day, decades ago, when glyphosate, known as Roundup, first came out, they would send Roundup salesmen around to gather all the farmers in town together, you know, with the local mint and talk about it and sell them on it. And the Roundup salesman would pour a cup of it and he would drink it just to show how safe it was. And then came 2020. That's when I think my frustration with the polarity and the politics of everything and just hot takes left and right, it just bubbled over in me. And this podcast really started to incubate around then. I would just lay awake and chew on on topics and Google stuff and read academic articles. And I came to believe that when we are so encamped on our side, we are missing half the story. And in the process of doing so, we're making a grave mistake. 
we can't actually solve any real problems without bringing a wide angle lens to them, without bringing nuance and, and without listening. I became more and more interested in doing that with agriculture. And I would share different things I was learning and mind boggling facts on social media. A few people have said that I did so in a way that was like Sharon says so, which is like my highest compliment. I try my hardest to be absolutely fact-based in everything that I share so that we can all get on the same page, the same team, and build the food system that we want and deserve. Little Creek grew. We got into beef. We got into natural ranch goods and seasonings and sheet milk soaps. And then we got into women's retreats, which has been so fulfilling to me. We run two types of retreats every year, shepherd camp and cowgirl camp. And we are this small little ranch that could. I say that Little Creek is in its awkward preteen years now. It's just myself, my husband, Justin, and we have a ranch hand in terms of full-time people. So it's very small. But we're established enough that I feel confident to say that I've been on the outside and now I'm on the inside of agriculture. And I've made that transition pretty quickly, you know, over about five, six years. I've been a quote unquote coastal elite and I've lived in a rural community in, in what they call God's country. And through it all, my opinions in both areas have been unpopular with some. It's really forced me to kind of become my own man with the way that I feel about things. For many ranchers, I'm too much of an environmentalist. For many environmentalists, I'm too much of a rancher. I believe that at the end of the day, facts are friendly. Nuance is our friend and that we can't change a food system we don't understand. So now that I've spoken so much around my lenses around food and agriculture, I'm hoping before next time that you can give some consideration to yours. There's nothing wrong with lenses. We all have them. I have one now, but sometimes, um, okay, I'm really going to try to make this metaphor work. Uh, we have to clean our lenses before we can see clearly. <laughs> Did I land it? <laughs> so with that, welcome to Choose Wisely. It's not a podcast about agriculture per se. It's a podcast about how we think about agriculture, what we're missing when we talk about food and what it all means intertwined with the coming climate crisis and modern life. I've been thanked a lot for my work, quote unquote, advocating, which is like advocating for agriculture. And I have to say, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm not afraid to criticize agriculture, but since that's already the fairly dominant narrative, I'm more interested in what's being left out. One of my goals of Choose Wisely is to shine a light on what we're overlooking and to be based in primary sources when I do so. I expect that I will piss everybody off a little bit throughout this podcast. I've pissed my own self off uncovering things in research that I didn't want to believe. I hope to make all of us, myself included, think more critically. I hope to broaden our minds. And I also hope to bring back some joy and gratitude around the food that we eat and the people who grow it. Because one of the most amazing things I've learned is that it's actually a great time for agriculture and sustainability in America. And I'm excited to tell you all about it. Thank you for joining me today on Choose Wisely. I hope your next meal is delicious and your next conversation nuanced.